0: theme for the afternoon talk is a, a reflection on death and the deathless. We as human beings <coughs> we are born, so to speak, between two polarities. One is called birth, one is called death and our life, day by day, moves along this uh, journey through the field of existence. In this movement through life, with the engagement uh, with it, we have the adequate number of resources in which we can explore some of the deep issues and questions of life. What is the relationship to death? What matters? Does life have any meaning or purpose? What is real? What is true and authentic? And despite the modesty of our size as human beings despite the modest range of senses that we have the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue and the touch and the framework of our inner life the feelings, the moods, the mind states, the thoughts, the memories and the consciousness What is remarkable and precious about this is we have enough resources And the potential, the genuinely profound and deep and awakening realisations. It is important in these major questions of life that we do not transfer authority to the other. There are people who claim to know the reality of things Scientists, sometimes uh, religious people, sometimes our uh, philosophers, sometimes uh, academics, and others. And in the act of the listening, such as uh, here with you this afternoon, it is not that the voice of the singular, namely the person sitting here, which is uh, that important, it is a sharing in which it may be beneficial and supportive for you as the listener to uncover and also reflect and meditate and dig into these issues of life. The exploration of these uh, issues and particularly the uh, area with regard to the uh, end of life, uh, uh, death, that there can be times and experiences in which we go through the great vulnerability of the insecurity and the uncertainty whether our life will continue or be disrupted and terminated and there can be times when we have felt the wind of death on our neck, so to speak, through a sickness, through a near accident. It may come and touch us as well in relationship to the other, the beloved other, the mother, the father, the close, dear friend, the husband, the wife, the partner, the uh, the lover, the colleague And these events of human existence of death, funerals men, women and children gathering to get, together remind us, well, there is this issue of life there is this issue of death and there is a, a relationship to that In this exploration of the relationship to uh, life and death like with everything else, it's rather important, I would say, to connect, whatever it is, with something else which is actual and can be felt and known. As sometimes, as humans, we, we kind of separate things. We, we, we elevate them. We make a theory out of them we make a metaphysic out so of an abstract, they get kind of disconnected and they fall into the, just the world of words and death and all the speculations of death and after death is a very common one for human beings which I'll address in a moment or two so when we attend to one issue to death, let's see if we can really connect it we might connect it with our meditations here which we will do as well we might connect it with the present moment we might connect it with vulnerability with the human experience with the death of another so that bringing together and connecting the ending with what is present the arising with what is staying and the finishing bringing all of that together to me it seems more available and accessible It seems to be part of the process understand? Not a metaphysic, not a theory, not an abstract It is very, very unfortunate that most of us, and maybe all do live in a society which is terrified of death and that shows itself that which we are afraid of we hide we push away into the darkness it is not to be seen it's only to be seen perhaps the occasional relative the friend and when we hide something when we keep it away when we cover it all up with what we do we deny ourselves a really precious opportunity to look at life to look at death to see the difference and to see what is common because we, we see there is a, a connection and we can experience it with our own eyes. The tradition, that is the Buddhist tradition, on this, particularly in the Vipassana monasteries, and especially in Thailand and probably elsewhere, is not, is not afraid of death. It actually encourages a lot of meditations and reflections uh, on death in a, in a variety of ways, and I'd just like to take the external for a moment and then the, uh, the internal aspect of this. In the monastery where I was, this is uh, China, in the south of uh, Thailand, in the room of the, uh, the teacher, the Vipassana teacher, There was a glass cabinet, glass cabinets, and in the glass cabinets there were bodies, monks, nuns, lay people there. And there would be regular explorations and discussions about death. And when death came in the monastery, because there were 100 to 200 of us, which was very, very uh, regularly, the body, the corpse, was part of the meditation upon, the contemplation upon. Even the monastery itself had been, 200 years ago before it became a monastery, um, a cemetery During the time uh, there (coughs) with the meditations which we can apply here we may find in our experiences here giving us a greater sense of being at ease with that which is called death We might think death is the most significant event to know and understand and to live without fear. It is not. The deathless is significantly and profoundly and deeply more important. But just taking the the agreement that we have as human beings life is changing, there's daydreams and fantasies and stories and the real and the unreal all mixed up together and we work our way through all of this until the end of life comes taking that as the everyday convention the common agreement the generalised view that is spoken and spread and kind of agreed upon we are in touch with things, we are not in touch with things in the reality of things, we are out of them and all the machinations of the inner life, with its images, pictures, thoughts, stories, kind of locked in there together. And yes, 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 all of this goes on, we experience this with all the ups and downs that go with it, is that it? Is that our life? Just that wandering in and out of the present moment, or wandering in and out of what is uh, important. So it's kind of, kind of, getting underneath all of that to get, in the beginning, before even touching on the death list in the beginning, just getting in touch with the actual conventional agreements of change Not Not an absolute truth, it's an agreement, it's an understanding through the senses A sitting, as per example, with you it has a beginning and it has an end. The beginning of it is brought about by conditions, and the end of it is brought about by conditions. Therefore, it is a birth and a death. A relationship may start with another uh, human being, it enters into the beginning, it goes through the passages of time, and, and it comes to an end. We can start an activity, move through, and it's complete. It's finished. It is over. We can usefully and beneficially put this into the language birth, staying, or passing, or moving, and death. The start, the middle period, and the death. And this willingness to sometimes make a little change in the language enables us, possibly, to have a little bit more perspective and understanding of the movement of birth, life and death and begin, just at the beginning, just a small way, begin to embrace it. Not theoretically, not idealistically, certainly not romantically, but just to embrace this. Sometimes it's hard to imagine the non-life, so to speak. You and I, I'm sure, we've all known people who we've known rather well, we've loved, we've laughed with, we've cried with, we've argued with, we've talked with. They have been vibrant and vital and energetic and agreeable and thoroughly disagreeable and all of that has impressed upon us and we have corresponded in the same way and this person is no longer breathing, feeling, living in this world as it will be for us. And in the dynamic of this intimacy and the vulnerability as human beings uh, uh, with life, when there is a death, when there is a loss, which is important to us, it is healthy, normal, natural, inorganic life to feel a sadness over her or his, we call it, departure. We call it moving on. But let's call it death and in this death of the other we feel that experience of the other's death. Something touches us as human beings around the loss of the other and this feeling though felt deep in the being and it and it is deep, and it's important that it's deep, uh, there, is to learn to rest with this feeling, to feel the depth of it. And if we can just feel the feeling of sadness, it will not produce, if we feel it well and deeply, it will not produce grief. And grief in the Dharma means that there is a desire moving into the sadness which strengthens the sadness to the point of a reactivity to the point that the thoughts which arise in relationship to the loss of, and the death of the uh, loved one is, oh my god, I, I wish this hadn't happened oh, God, I should have done a lot more why didn't I contact this person more? why didn't I share more? why didn't I give of myself uh, well, I let this person down there. Yeah. And then we can get into kind of giving ourselves a hard time, intensifying blame upon ourselves. Not because of the loss, not because of the sadness, but the grief is what I am experiencing over. It's self-pity, in the name of the loss of the other, but actually we want the person back, we didn't want this to happen, in that grief, in that despair, because of what we're missing, because of who we're missing, it's self-interest. Sadness does not have self-interest, it has love. And you and I will be faced with loss in life and sadness in life. And we will be faced with the one or the ones who are present for us and who are no longer present. Some people die, they're rather blessed in the manner of their death. My mum was one of those so just uh, one of the uh, the blessings of departure we might say, the blessings of death so she got pregnant in her early 20s we have a history of this in the family (laughs) being pregnant and not not being married and uh, I can go back four generations with this, I'm also part of this sequence. Rather happy about it, to be honest. And so she got pregnant in her early 20s. And then this swallow was born on a farm in the very north of England on the Pennine Moor, very kind of remote. I'm actually planning to go there for the first time, or back there for the first time since I left. With my mum, which was 73 years ago, so she was on this farm for a a, a couple of years, and life went life went on with my mum and I. And as I wrote, quite, I may say, quite recently, um, I wrote, I I feel very, very blessed to have been born with a single mum because. She gave me a whole attention and it didn't have to be divided A bit naughty, but you know what I mean So, three cheers to single moms and, uh, and Jesus, he had a single mom and The Buddha had a single father And as my grandson says, who doesn't know his father And, uh, and his father takes no interest uh, My daughter a single mom with him for years and whenever he's asked about it, his comment is, Well, Granddad turned out alright. <laughs> <laughs> Just a view, alright. So then she comes to the end of the life. Yeah. And we know with health, with accidents, sicknesses, dementia, and Alzheimer's and much more the the afflictions of what people can experience quite young, some days and years and older. My mum had 13 operations in the last 12 years of her life. She said, I'm a body of spare parts. I've got bits of pig inside me and bits of cows and some metal, I've got new hips, I've got new knees, I've had laser treatment on my eyes, I've got a bit of metal holding my shoulder blades together. She says, I'm all spare parts. With some humor, bless her. On the final morning of her her life, just before her 95th birthday, she stayed independent, it's also run in the family, until she was uh, 90, and then it got a little bit difficult. She didn't initially, it might be like some of your mums and dads or grandparents, didn't want to go into a home for the elderly. Oh no, I like my independence, I don't want to be in this home for the aged. There, so my beloved sister took her to the home for the aged, this is in Australia, my mother emigrated to Australia when she was 78. And I said, well you've got a little home here, why not keep it? In England, you keep your home, so if you don't like it, don't get on with the Aussies, as well as with my sister, <laughs> if you don't get home, you can come back. She had a great response. In life, why do things by half? If you're going to do it, do it totally. Got rid of the house, and off she went. Last morning of the life, The young care attendant, 25-year-old, who told me the story, so it's not second-hand, went to my mum's room, and my mum said, as she's been saying for the last two or three years before, give me a cup of tea. One was supposed to have the cup of tea at the breakfast time. The young uh, attendant, young woman, there working in the care home, said, "Okay, Peggy, that was my mum's. Then she was called, cool. I'll go and get, make her put the kettle on for you and make you a pot of tea. And just as she was opening the door to go, my mum said, "Oh, I'm going to die." And the young woman turned to my mum and said, "Oh, come on, Peggy, come on, etc." The woman went out, made the pot of tea, came back five minutes later, and my mum was dead. She'd gone. It's so, like, very quietly. My sister had been there the evening before, they were chatting about going to the cinema. On the evening before, my mum said, Oh, my 95th birthday just came here, I'm going to make a cake for all the people in the care home. And for, and for the star. so following morning, quietly gone out of this world. Sometimes with life, in the way, a very good woman with a religious faith and more, Again, just very blessed and lucky and fortunate in the way just to move out of this world. So then my sister rings me up, straight after, obviously, and said, Mum's gone, Mum's dead. Quietly, peacefully, this morning. So I said, "Well, look, Australia's a long way away. Shall I just send some flowers? Can I just send some flowers and look after the funeral, and of course cover the expenses with you, uh, etc.? There, because Mum doesn't care; she's gone, <laughs> whether I'm present or not." <coughs> and my sister Judy, she said to me. You've got to come. You're the speaker in the family, not me. (laughs) Okay. So, ring up, boom, boom, 24 hours or so later, I'm I'm there for for the funeral. So, there's the loss, the sadness of the son and the daughter, of of course, and a little bit of relief that the transition was so, the death came so well. Passed out of this world. when we look at our coming back to our time here there are plenty of ways around us which we also see the life and death cycle going on obviously and it could be in the in the creatures and uh, it could be in the uh, passing of the plants and in that which was present and available is no longer present and available just a candle flame arises, it's blown out, it exhausts itself in a way, day by day, hour by hour, we are witnessing naturally, in the motion of things, birth and death going on, birth, staying and death So if we include it into the experience, in a way, though it isn't easy but the simple actuality of life and death, or birth and death is that our event is just another small event in this sequence. But if we exaggerate our importance, if we cling to life, then that holding and clinging, as was pointed out in these teachings, that again and again make it that much more difficult to do with the ending. Because we are holding on to, and we want to expand instead of holding, to start to embrace, and the the beginning of the embrace is the beginning of the whisper of the deathless. That's what's profound about it. In the monastery, of course, we're in a monastery now, so. My, what you call it? Monastery, samkaras The uh, recollections pop in and out on the uh, regular basis uh, while being uh, here And in the monastery <coughs> there was uh, a monk a very beloved monk named Paul Longbut Poor pa means elder brother Longbut is the name and if you're a long pea, like me, a uh, younger brother. So, poor Longbut. And I noticed, of well, course, right from the very beginning, that every day, except in the monsoon season, poor Longbut stood under a tree for three hours, from 12 noon till 3 in the afternoon, seven days a week. I was a young guy in my mid-twenties, and I thought, well, if this old geezer can do it, (laughs) maybe I can do this. Why not? So in a tree very close at hand, I stood, began standing under the tree. Poor. What have I let myself in for? And it seemed eternity of three hours. Eternity doesn't convey at all just how long it was. So I just stood under the, uh, the tree and I would look just metres away from him and I would look across so every time I had a wobble like I could go and sit <laughs> go and have a lie down in my room I'd look across and think, God, he's anchored He's stable, he's 71 years of age, I'm 25 or 26 years of age, so he was my reference because he was the only guy in the whole monastery who was doing this on a daily basis. If he can do it, I I I can handle the wobble. I can handle red and white ants running over my ankle I can handle those mosquitoes because oh, he's got them, I got them Okay, there. Yeah, so I used him as the model for me to do this So the next um, two years or so I did my three hour standing uh, meditation uh, uh, every afternoon It never felt like a routine It never felt like a habit I didn't feel bored I've got all the diaries at home so I know I looked at them uh, there and just stood on this earth, close to the tree. There, it stopped two two and a half years later for poor Longwood. and the reason that it's that it stopped, he had liver cancer, and he went from three hours a day to two hours to one hour, to slow walking, and enduring a, a lot of pain never complained we brought the doctor in and and this was the uh, the diagnosis we persuaded him to go to the hospital three or four five or six of the monks this is the important bit of the story sat around in a small circle with him and said to him bolombo You are old Health is not good King Yama King Yama is the personification It's the Lord of Death So in the language, the poetic language of the tradition The Lord of Death circles around the earth every day and points the finger and says to millions of people, from babies, to children, to adults, to the old, etc. This is your last day. This is your last hour. This is the end of your time on this earth." So no but King Yama is looking for you, you're old and you're sick and he's looking to f- for you and Longbutt said in his marvellous beautiful and quiet way he said King Yama Lord Yama is looking for me everywhere everywhere but he cannot find Longbutt and he never will Put the hands of the oh. Sadhu, sadhu. It was the showing the emptiness of I and my. And therefore not to be found. Longbutt knew directly and we knew he knew. He knew the deathless. Death is bound up with I and my. In the last <coughs> day of the life, <coughs> I went in the morning on the begging round with the begging bowl, and poor Longbut sent a message. I didn't know Thai, I liked the silence uh, and the stillness of things rather than trying to learn a language. And he sent a novice. Go and find Kitty Supol. That was my name. Go and find Kitty He said, A little bit of Thai I knew. He said, Wei La Ma Lao. And this means time has come. That means death is very close. So, Novice found me. Wei La Ma Lao, Polombo. Well, walked quickly back there. Went into his hut. Hut is maybe two and a half metres by two and a half metres there lies on the mat just like the one you see in front of me here lay on the mat beside him and just held his hands and then he said after a while, I can't remember how long he said, my hand, my hen can't see, eyes had gone the first of the sense doors to fade away as the death got very close and then he said can't hear, sound, sound has gone there. Peaceful, quiet, unreactive, totally mindful, totally present and then I squeezed his hand and then very kind of just squeezed mine just a little bit. And in those moments of just holding the hand the heat began to fade out of the end of the fingertips and slowly, slowly as the heat went out of the fingertips the body went cooler and cooler and cooler it got. That evening in the hall, probably maybe two thirds the size of this hall, there, we myself and a couple of other young monks. We carried him into the hall, and we placed him on the floor, in his robes, just as he was when he did, and just lay him down on the floor uh, in the hall there. And the teacher asked me to. Teacher spoke, actually, we passed on teacher, and they very kindly, with the translator, asked me to talk. Mostly, be, I think, because of this um, lovely connection that I experienced with poor Longbut and uh, our standing meditation together over this uh, two years plus period there. And at the end of the talk, after I spoke at the end of it, I said, "My little bit of poor, tan, poor long Ben Arhan is the highest attribute that one could make to a human being. Poor Longbut is a fully liberated human being, seen the emptiness of I and my, and therefore not bound to death, and knows the deathless. Very, quite a thing, if I may say, to say in a hall full of pretty dedicated hard hardcore monks to state this attainment. You know, I'm just a you know, young guy, I've just been ordained two or three years, and the monks and the novices and the and all those who are sitting on this evening on that evening spontaneously put their hands together, spontaneously bowed their head down and said, Sadhu, 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 well said, well said, well said. And sometimes, to repeat it, as we attend to life and death and the significance and the sadnesses which goes with that, but let's not neglect that, sorry, let's not let that overcome this remarkable, extraordinary discoveries which we can make. And the person quite, is quite totally in their right, shall we put it like this, to say, well, I don't know if there's such a thing as liberation, I don't know if there's the deathless, I don't know if there is a reality which is changeless and without any limits to it I don't know if there is an immense I don't know if there is a great ocean and I am a wave on the ocean and I am water as much as the ocean and therefore vast and deep One may say that what's precious about these teachings it doesn't matter It's not a question, you have to believe this, this is some kind of uh, Buddhist viewpoint. What is wonderful and precious about this, the practice and the exploration begins to open up and expand the consciousness and in that exploration that takes place the only valid way is that you know through your own insights and realisations not because there's a tradition not because Christopher or another teacher might speak of these things not because of what was said two and a half thousand years ago but a human being can know such a freedom that nothing in the world could take it not a sight, not a sound not a smell, not a taste, not a touch not a feeling, not a thought, not a memory. Nothing can intrude on it. And that discovery of that makes it deathless, it makes it free, uh, because nothing can impose itself. And this can be seen and can be be known. quite a lot in New Year. One of the monks, gosh I could tell you some stories here, one of the monks was another precious monk in the monastery, and this happens quite a, a few times. The teacher, or one of the monks or nuns, would invite and say, "Oh." have a small group and say, oh, those insights that you share, those discoveries that you shared, why, why don't, why don't we just, why can't we just establish you as a teacher? And lots don't like this language of teacher. And at the time of the Buddha, the Buddha was the only one who was called the teacher. None of the others, all those who were quote-unquote teaching, did not use this word. I, I all of a sudden, not exactly thrilled with it either. Uh, I I have a certain hesitation around labels, teacher. One of the labels I keep a a big distance from is the identity of being called a Buddhist. I don't call myself a Buddhist. Others will say, oh, Christopher the Buddhist teacher. I don't mind. I use the word Buddhist. But when it comes to being a Buddhist, it's not my cup of tea. I I was brought up a Catholic. I got out of that. I don't want to go, go into another. So sometimes people ask me questions about rebirth and reincarnation and nirvana. And I said, Look, please go and ask a Buddhist. <laughs> Why are you asking me? Uh, Etc. And one of the monks, much loved, who we would have loved to teach, but he had no interest to be up the front and speak, so just, to, just a few small groups and then one day he said I've decided to be a teacher yeah wonderful he said yes he said I'll be a wonderful teacher when I'm dead (laughs) he said don't burn me keep me stick me in the cabinet take me out in the day and put me in a chair meditating and it would be a reminder of birth and death, life and death, who are we to argue with a wise soul? Okay, Sometime later, actually after I disrobed going back to pay respects to my teacher, I walked into the monastery, I actually didn't know that he died, this is true, I walked into the monastery, so the monks are there meditating, he's there, sitting in, in the chair, and I, like if I just walked through the compound here, and I looked across and the thought in my mind went you don't look very well at all and then I looked again he's gone, he's gone and the monks it's like having a piece of furniture they actually were using furniture polish and they'd have a nice cloth and polish him up and make the robe look cool, I mean, and uh, etc. This, this, this is monastic this monastic life. The the, the, the the surgeon in the hospital at Lakhon-si Tamarat would come, and he says, "I've got a." He was quite excited. "I've got a gift for you for your heart." I said, "That's very sweet. That's very kind." He says, "It's in a jar." I said, oh, that's very, very kind. I, I, I said, what is it? He said, it's a man's heart. He says, I just cut it out a few hours ago. Oh, well, who am I to argue with the president? Thank you very much. He said that the person whose heart it was, actually had been, he was a businessman, had been murdered. And he left in his will, that he wanted to leave his body to the monastery, or parts of the body, uh, to remind them of life and death. And that's so in my hut, for the next year or two, there is this jar, this man's heart, in the formalin which protects it, just sitting there to remind me of birth and death. Not likely to happen very much where well, we live, is it? But it it kept the focus and kept us inquiring and questioning and and uh, and being present and understanding what consciousness can reveal and what the eyes and ears can't reveal, but what can be revealed when we're not. Swimming and lost in I, me, and my, and that discovery which is um, other than that. In the exploration, just to go to the end, so-called end of life, if I may, just for a moment or two. You will know, whether you are from the East or the West, the North or the South, um, the variety of views which human beings have arrived at, sometimes quite strongly, about the end of life. Though it seems to be really important, a big issue and a big thing in these teachings, not not regarded uh, in that way. So some, with immense conviction, will say there is one life, we are born, we live, we die, it is complete extinction. We might call it a scientific, materialistic view, which many people will hold to. Yes, you're, just, you're born, you live, you get on with your life as best you can, you deal with your dying and your death as best you can, and it's over, extinction, this is it, once absolute and for all. It's a view. It's a view. It can't be proved, but it can't be disproved. Second view, common enough in the East, two aspects to it. One is called rebirth and the other is called reincarnation. So in reincarnation there is consciousness or Atman and upon death there is, the, is a shift and that shift of consciousness transmigrates into that meeting, generally speaking, of uh, men and uh, women and energies and sperm and so forth, and in that meeting there is a new life with the consciousness which is transmigrated from the old life. So this is a view, It's a very common view, it's a very widespread view uh, here in uh, in India – either disprovable or provable because it's a death. There is the widespread Buddhist view there that because there's no self, therefore there is no soul or no essence to a human being because it can't be found, there is a rebirth. And as with the soul view, the rebirth is under the influence of the old karma. So there's a force, it moves, transmigrates from one life to the next, and it's called rebirth. And then there's the other view, commonly enough, held by millions, perhaps a billion or two people, when I die, according to my beliefs, beliefs in God, beliefs in Jehovah, beliefs in uh, Allah uh, and according to my deeds what I have done, the combination of the two, that if I have lived a life in accordance with the scripture or in accordance with the church or uh, accordance with the Guru or so forth, then I'll go to heaven. And many sincere people committed to that view. The Buddha and these teachings and practices do not actually hold to any of those views. And the word rebirth is not to be found in a single discourse of the Buddha. Not found. And the word is Punavabhavate, yeah. something like that and it means re-becoming. So it's not about some essence going from there to here but it's about the movement, or the evolution, or the dynamics, or the processes of life. And possibly the best analogy or comparison, relative one to this, is that we are waves of the ocean, we might say. And this ocean is formed, it comes together, and we are out of the great ocean of the life, or the ocean of the universe, we might say, here we are. Years are passing by, some of us, in the older generation, the next generation, and so forth, and and the forces move, and here we are in this. And, and therefore, there is a re-becoming process. The dynamics, the forces—we might say, good and bad, healthy and unhealthy, whatever—forces move and give shape to these expressions and these formations. There, process of extraordinary re-becoming, going back generations upon generations upon generations. As we know, and then there is the invitation. Rather than having a belief, when I die is cessation. When I die, I go to heaven or hell. When I die, I get myself is reborn into another body, uh, etc. The exploration and the invitation is look deeply. Not to be so much trapped in the identity, I am a wave. I am a human being. To recognise that, the formations and the differences, but quietly and gently looking more deeply than just being the wave. And that quiet uh, exploration gives opportunity for wonderful and really precious discoveries. And what is interesting from the point of view of the text is how infrequently it's not even easy to find the Buddha's reference to re-becoming. Rebirth is not there, the word's not there. That this dynamic process of uh, re-becoming and sometimes you and I can sense in our experience, my goodness me, we even ask ourselves There's a wave of, let's say, reactivity, a sudden movement in our being, and it lands in the present. And sometimes we ask ourselves or our loved ones, wow, where did that one come from? What went on that released that? And we face the unexpected. And we face the expected, those kind of, to keep the same language, waves that pass through life. And we can look and explore them, which that is what we are doing here. And when those waves have left less impact, life has not just been a wave in a grey ocean of waves, there's something more to be found and discovered and we get receptive to that and we get receptive to the ocean to the vast to the deathless to the immense Sometimes in the outdoors here <coughs> as well as um, elsewhere with the meditations the standing and the, and the, and the walking as well as with the sitting in a very healthy uh, way we may not be concerned with change and sometimes it's really important not to be quite often in the tradition those of you who have meditated regularly enough Um, with a variety of teachers some really precious and wonderful teachers around that some teachers will say meditate from moment to moment meditate moment to moment be mindful moment to moment the word moment to moment if that was really what the practice was or is about, surely the master of meditation, i.e., the Buddha, would have at least mentioned at least once: meditate mindfully from moment to moment. The word is shana, k s h a n a. I mean, it's a, not like it's a special word, I think. There is nowhere where there is a statement saying "be mindful and meditate moment to moment." It doesn't exist in, in the texts. Why? It's far too ambitious Golly Once I was giving a I shan't mention the name of the teacher I'm trying to be a polite Englishman um, giving, giving a Giving a talks. So in the old days I used to s- sit nearby at the, the front <coughs> and the teacher What wonderful teacher. I love love to bits. And it was the only time in many years of listening to the other that spontaneously my head went from side to side Uh, not in the Indian Yes style but in the Western No style. (laughs) And the teacher said in the middle of the talk, very lovely talk, he said Buddha was always mindful from moment to moment every single moment and I went <laughs> not a chance etc and then the, the beloved teacher looked across at me could he, could he, could he saw hundred heads swing in my direction I thought, oh, should have kept my head still anyway uh, there. so he asked me why there sometimes we ask too much of ourselves—that would be one thing. To be always in the moment, moment to moment—I have not met a human being on this earth who could possibly do that. And I've met some of—I'm very blessed—and met some of the great spiritual teachers and masters, women and men on this earth over these years. But there's even a more important reason than not having an idea of how I should be living moment to moment The more important reason is, back to the sitting and the walking and uh, the standing for a moment there are times, I may say, I find and uh, may you find as well and may have a sense of what I mean there's a certain kind of uh, way of the being in these periods of time, which feel genuinely very fulfilled, genuinely um, alive and really uh, present, sometimes the whole body feels, but particularly, as I mentioned this morning, this frontal area of the body. And there's something really precious here, not as an end in itself, so in other words um, the light of the day and the colours and the sounds can all be passed by. And this sense of the presence, it would be kind of judgmental to think, oh I must keep this from moment to moment, but rather it's there in a kind of deep experiential way, and sometimes a description of it may vary a little bit so the voice or the thought may arise Oh, this is love or this is presence or this is a statement of deep inner peace or this is a sense of well-being this is a confirmation of the expanse which is ever-present, or whatever. So sometimes this sense of presence, with love, deep uh, inner peace, and it might, with that, there's a recognition, I didn't really develop anything, I didn't need to build myself up in any way. I wasn't trying to get somewhere, but it was just a quiet trust really, in just sitting and walking and standing and sitting and walking and standing, and quite naturally this occurred, quite organically. And though there may have been a few things to work with and work through, one keeps rediscovering this, whatever this is, there. And that has some expanse to it which does not seem to be limited by the body. It's hard to explain this. But the authentic sense of it, and when something around us touches us, it might. Bring out of that that uh, deep uh, the kindness for the other, the moment of appreciation, the uh, sense of uh, the experience of love for the other, here or elsewhere, the the, the gratitude, um, uh, a blessing. So. There's a diversity of what emerges out of the being in this steadiness, feeling fulfilled, and the different expressions of it come. And some extraordinary way, this, which I am referring to, is the confirmation of the deathless. It is the great freedom itself moving through the human being because it's freed up the love, it's freed up the kindness, it's freed up the blessings, it's freed up the insights, it's freed up the infinite. And this infinite is the deathless and it's accessible and close at hand. It's known in our standing, it's known in our walking, it's known in our sitting, it's known in our presence with each other. May all beings be in touch with that which is deep. May all beings live with love. May all beings recognise the deathless.